We've been spending time in the book of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, final book of the New Testament. And we've dealt with a few different cities and this morning I'd like to take two cities and put them together. And so we're gonna begin with Revelation three and deal with the city from Sardis. These are the words of Revelation three, verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, the word seven means completeness and fullness. So he has, this is the full spirit of God and all of the heavens that is speaking. I know your works, he says. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Verse four, yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes and I will not erase your name from the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. Notice again that these letters are written to the churches. Even though he's writing to Sardis, it's to the churches. Again, we've, we were looking at the meaning of the number seven in previous letters and how these letters are for all of us, for all the churches, even if they are specifically pointed towards a particular current ap uh, application in John's time. From what I've read, this is what I've learned about Sardis. Sardis is a city, was a city, built on a cliff with only one access road. Sardis used to boast that their strategic location prevented any enemy from conquering them. They were rather smug about their impenetrability. However, two times in history, in 549 BC and 196 BC, when the guards were not paying attention, individuals secretly climbed the walls of the cliff at night, climbed the walls of the city, jumped into the city, unlocked the front gates, and let an invading army come in, and twice the city was conquered. The citizens preferred to forget about those events and talked only about their impenetrability and how safe they were behind their walls because of their fortuitous setting on the edge of a cliff. In the poetry of its day, Sardis was known as a city of overconfidence, arrogance, and pride. By the time John is writing, which is about 95 years after Jesus is born, the glory days of that city were mostly past. But the citizens still enjoyed a comfortable lifestyle marked by Roman and Greek moral sensibilities which essentially meant anything goes. The city is in decline, but the citizens are living by their memories of the glory days of the past. 
And John's words to Sardis are very critical. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You can actually hear the echoes of the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah in these words, especially when you consider the words of Ezekiel. When God pronounces judgment against Israel in the time of Ezekiel, hundreds of years after the incident with Lot and his wife, listen to what God says in judgment of Israel in comparison to the sin of Sodom. This is verse 47 from Ezekiel. You not only followed their ways, he's talking about the people of Sodom, and acted according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. He's saying to the people of Israel, Israel, you are worse than Sodom. As I live, says the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. This was the guilt of your sister, of Sod- your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. I mean, we tend to think of Sodom in terms of sexual sin, but this is what Ezekiel says, prophesying for the Lord. Their sin was much more significant than that. In addition to being lax about morality, they indulged themselves at the expense of the poor. And many of the people in the church of Sardis are guilty of exactly the same thing. Think about it. Think about hearing the words of the prophet that says, you guys are worse than Sodom. And we know how God judged Sodom. The good news is this. In this passage, as always, Jesus is patient. There's time for repentance. There's time to wake up to the reality of their sin and make changes. The second part of the judgment that is listed here in the Revelation is based on the city's glorification of the past, which apparently is mirrored in the church. When the people of God find their worth in remembering what God has done in the past, they tend to close themselves off to the new thing that God wants to do in the present and the future. Queen Esther reminded us, didn't she, that we are given for such a time as this. And regardless of what our past is, we're given for the present leading to the future. And never forget that God is the God of the new thing. If our attitude is consumed by remembering, we will never figure out the blessings of today and tomorrow. So Jesus says in verse two, strengthen all that is good, embrace the work of God under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and look to the future for the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is still keeping promises today, and he is still creating a future for the people of God. Scott Daniels makes this observation. For many years, the church has been saying, if we build it, 
they will come. And for many years, that strategy worked. And we remember the days when that strategy did work. But that day is not this day. Scandals, cultural changes, divergent views on what is good and bad make it less likely that folks will trust the church long enough to enter its doors. The truth is, many will not come, many will never darken the doors of the church. But it's also true that our mission has not changed. If we invest our energy into programs that worked in the past, assuming they will work again in the future, we're simply saying to the Spirit, oh, we've been here before, we know what's best to do, we know how to turn out the crowd. That's essentially the sin of Moses. You remember what Moses did. The people of Israel are grumbling about not having enough water, and so Moses goes to God and God says, go over and strike that rock and water will come out and care for the people, he does that. And then time passes and they move on to a new place and they're in the same situation again. And the people are grumbling about water, Moses goes to God, God says to Moses, just speak to that rock and you'll have water. But Moses, knowing better than God, and probably a little frustrated about being in this situation with these grumbling people again, remembers that last time he struck the rock and water came. And so rather than speaking to the rock, which would have been a witness to the power of God at work, Moses hits the rock again. And water does come, but there's a consequence. I mean, Moses has assumed, well, whatever worked in the past will work in the future. And if all you care about is getting some type of visible response, maybe that's good enough. But God wants a witness to his power. He wants a testimony of faithfulness to who he is. And so Moses strikes the rock, water flows out, but then Moses and God have a reckoning, right? And God says to Moses, Moses, it's not what I told you to do. If you're gonna be my faithful witness, you gotta do what I tell you to do. And because you have proven to me now that you are not my faithful witness, you will not be the one to lead the people into it, to the promised land. And so there is the consequence to assuming that whatever worked in the past will work again and I don't, I don't need the same level of connection to the Holy Spirit or God in order to move forward into the future. We must do the things that he commands in the ways that he commands them. The methods of the past are not guaranteed to be the methods of the future. God's will for the past may not be exactly the same as God's will for today. A vital, fresh, ongoing relationship with God through the Holy Spirit is vital to our spiritual health in every generation, constantly, forever. We're living in a new day, we have to ask some new questions. Maybe some of the questions we ask are, how can we contribute to the transformation of this community? Or how can we meet people outside the walls of the church so that we can connect with them and remain relevant? These are difficult questions to consider. It's so much easier just to repeat what we've done before. But this is a new day. And God has a word for the new day if we will wait for it and stay connected to the Spirit. The church in Laodicea, which is the next letter 
excuse me, which is the last letter of the seven, seems to have a similar problem, though not exactly the same. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe yourself and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and to salve, the, uh, to, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may, be, so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The church in Laodicea believes it's wealthy, but in the eyes of God, it is wretched and a thing to be pitied. You know, it reminds me of a story I heard told once about an emperor who wanted some new clothes. Do you know the story? Some tricky merchants convince the emperor that they can spin thread and weave cloth that is so light and so magnificent that it feels like wearing nothing at all. Better yet, the cloth has a magical ability. Only people who are worthy of the job that they hold can actually see the cloth. So, so wearing garments made of this cloth is the perfect way for the emperor to find out who in his kingdom is worthy of the position they are holding. And so the gullible emperor pays the men tons of gold and helps them get started to weave new cloth and get him the kind of suit that they promised to deliver. When it's finally done, the merchants bring the suit to the king who to his own horror can't see anything at all. And his assumption is of course that he is indeed unfit to be the emperor. But he can't let anyone know that he can't see the cloth or the suit because if they knew he couldn't see it, then they would think he was unfit for his position and they would remove him. And so, as he oohs and ahs over the lovely suit of clothes that they bring into the throne room, and because all of his court members know the truth of the magical cloth as well, they all join him in ooing and aahing over this lovely suit of clothes that not a one of them can see. And all of them wonder, am I also unfit for my position? The emperor will not give in to the lie. He puts on the clothes. And the counselors of his court, knowing what's at stake, compliment lavishly the emperor on his new clothes. 
On and on the deceit continues. Everyone fawns over the new clothes. The merchants convince the emperor that, they, that he should organize a parade so everybody in the kingdom can see his new clothes. And so, strutting like a peacock, the emperor begins a parade. The news has spread. And everyone in the city applauds the emperor's new clothes as he walks down the street in his birthday suit. The emperor might have pulled it off if it hadn't been for one small five-year-old boy. Upon seeing the emperor pass by, the little boy shouted out, Dad, look, the emperor's naked. A hush fell over the crowd. You, could, you know that kind of hush where everybody inhales and no one's ready to breathe again. People begin to grin. But the emperor has already gone too far to back down now. And so he just acts like he hasn't heard what everyone else obviously heard and proudly finishes the parade and then quickly makes it back to the castle. He didn't make any public appearances for a while. The church in Laodicea is blind to the fact that they are useless to the kingdom of God. They are self-satisfied. They have no intention of doing anything more than what they're already doing. Now the city of Laodicea was outwardly prosperous, but it had a critical witness, a, a critical weakness. They had no immediate water supply. Water for that city had to be brought in by aqueduct six miles away, and by the time it got there, it was always warm and didn't taste very good. That's the nature of life in Laodicea. Worse, any enemy that could attack the water supply could keep water from going into the city, so they were very, very vulnerable. And I think the analogy to our Christian lives is pretty obvious. When Christians or churches are cut off from the source of living water, we are soon lifeless and useless. What use is a church that won't follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? What use are citizens of the kingdom of God who won't tell the gospel story? We may feel good about what we're able to do, but there is only one judge who determines what the right thing to do is, and only his opinion matters. When we cease to listen to the Holy Spirit, either because we arrogantly think we know what is best, or if we cease to listen because subconsciously we think we're good enough and no longer need the Spirit's leading, well, the result is the same. We are either lukewarm or already dead and too dumb to fall over. I want to say my next words carefully. The thing that makes a great church is not its size, is not its leaders, is not its resources. We tend to think that large churches are great churches, but if recent history teaches us anything, large churches can be built on the backs of individuals who are charismatic, who have deep pockets, who are figuring out ways to manipulate people through media and music. And this is a scary thing. Religious organizations can appear to be thriving, especially on television, at least for a while, without a vital connection of the Holy Spirit. 
But like Laodicea, what looks good on the outside may be dead on the inside. Unless there's a vital connection to the Holy Spirit, a commitment to following his voice and embracing his mission for the world, any organization or church is rotting from the inside out. I don't know what to say exactly about these words of judgment that come from Christ today. They are true of many churches and they are true of many Christians. Only the Holy Spirit can tell us whether any of these are true of us. The good news is this. Sardis is told there is still time to change. And Laodicea is told that Jesus is standing at the door, knocking, waiting for an invitation. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time at all, you know that Revelation 3.20 is often a passage we use with folks to invite them into the kingdom, to say Jesus is already waiting for your confession of faith. He's waiting to open the door so that you can enter the kingdom. But that's not exactly what this passage of scripture means. Jesus is standing at the door of the church. He's knocking on the door of folks who are already in the kingdom but have somehow allowed the door to shut, closing off their vital connection with God and the Spirit. And Jesus is knocking the door saying, hey, you've you've forgotten about me. You've left me outside. It seems like the door is locked. I mean, what's it going to be? Jesus is knocking at the door, listening, it says. I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. Whenever the church has lost its way, whenever we have forgotten to whom we report, whenever we've forgotten the mission, whenever we have pridefully decided that we know best what the church should do, when we are more interested in condemning the society rather than loving it, Jesus starts knocking on the door. Let me back in. Join me again in my mission to love the world. Relish the deep relationship with the Holy Spirit that is the birthright of all Christians. It's sad to be a person who is looking like they're living on the outside, but dead on the inside. You know, I think it's comfortable when we hear these kind of words to just assume that they are true of other people, right? But I have to confess, it hasn't been very long since I felt pretty dead myself on the inside. At the end of the um, COVID years, I was physically and emotionally exhausted. I had worked long hours, dealt with such diverse and opposite opinions, been accused of all kinds of foolish behavior, been called all kinds of ugly names, and on top of all that, lost friends for reasons I didn't even understand. And when you are overwhelmed like that, It is easy to spend less time in personal worship and become distracted by the workload and the problems that are everywhere and the fatigue. And for me, it took digging down deep 
It took conversation with friends, reorganizing my personal worship routines, listening to Christian music in order to reestablish the practices that nourished this vital link with the Holy Spirit. Because interaction with the Holy Spirit is vital to our health and to the church's health, our health corporately, our health individually. And I suspect that there are more folks who present as alive but really feel rather dead on the inside. The judgment of Jesus is this. In time, that will kill you. It's fatal. But I'm knocking at the door. And all you have to do is open the door again and the springs of living water will flow again. All you have to do is nurture your vital connection to the Holy Spirit and everything can be different again. And I, and I just have this sense that even this morning that Jesus is knocking at our door and there may be some of us who need to open that door again. And so at the end of the service today, I'd like to do two things. I'd like us to sing a song for anyone who feels like they need to open that door again. You might want to bow your head in the seat where you are and ask God to help you do that. There's at least a little bit of space here at the altar that's free of food. If you think it would be helpful to kneel at the altar while we sing this song, I invite you to do that. But we're gonna sing a song together with the express intention of giving you opportunity to open that door again if that's necessary. And after that song is over and you've had an opportunity to do what you need to do based on what the Spirit's saying to you, we will sing again the song of praise and worship we've been singing. Because we worship God because of his patience and his kindness and the fact that he's always willing to open, us, open to us again and invite us in again so that we can be renewed and restored and made useful to the kingdom of God again. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and we'll sing, Lord, I need you. And then after that, we'll sing the Revelation song. Lord, I need you. Jesus, we hear you knocking, and we know that as we open our, the door of our heart to you, that you will enter. Help us, Lord, to be continually open to you, not just this morning, but each day. Renew the vital link we once had with your spirit, and place us in service to you. Jesus, we love you, and we worship you. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He. Sing. 
heaven's mercy seat. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He.
praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Amen. Heavenly Father, receive our praise this morning. You are patient with us. You are gracious to us. You are forgiving, always forgiving. But Lord, grant that we would not take your forgiving and your patience for granted, but enable us moment by moment to walk in step with your spirit, that the inexpressible joy of walking with Christ would be evident in our lives this day and always. May you live to the glory of God now and always. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.